Our sermon text today is from Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And when he had fasted forty days and forty nights, afterward he was hungry. Now when the tempter came to him, he said, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him up into the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He shall give his angels charge over you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against the stone. Jesus said to him, It is written again, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. Again, the devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, away with you, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only you shall serve. Then the devil left him and behold, angels came and ministered to him. This is the word of the Lord. John, with me, let us pray. Dear Lord, be with us today as we study your word. Once more, we ask that we would interpret scripture with scripture so that we would hear your spirit speaking to us. Present to us, Jesus, Lord, as both our hero and example. May we put our faith in him and may we follow his lead. Grant us this, we ask you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, and please be seated. Today, as we come to Matthew 4, we see once more how Matthew records the story of Jesus as the story of Israel retold. You know, just as God baptized Israel in the Red Sea and then led the nation into the wilderness to be tested, so likewise Jesus is baptized and then led into the wilderness to be tested. The difference, of course, once again, is that Jesus succeeds where Israel fell. Now, as we've seen, by telling Jesus' story this way, Matthew causes us to repeatedly hearken back to the Old Testament. At the same time, we've also seen how Jesus' story prefigures what's yet to come at the end of Matthew's gospel, particularly regarding Jesus' death and resurrection. As we come to our text today, I want us to keep those two things in mind again. The thing I want us to see is that Jesus experience is that the testing Jesus experiences in the wilderness at the beginning of his ministry not only recalls the past, but also anticipates the greater testing he faces when going to the cross. Keeping those parallels in mind, how our study harkens to the past and yet points forward to the future, 
is going to be key to making sense of our text. All right. With that in mind, let's get started by looking at the beginning of our text to set the context for it. Notice verse 1 says, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. First thing to notice about the opening of our text is mention of the Spirit. It's very important to recall Jesus has just been baptized prior to the events recorded in our text. If you remember, it was at his baptism that Jesus officially became the Christ or anointed one because it was at his baptism that he received the Holy Spirit who came down upon him in the form of a dove. So we know throughout scripture, the Holy Spirit is not given to make us feel all warm and fuzzy and good. Rather, the Holy Spirit is usually given to empower people for office or to prepare them for battle. And therefore, what we see in our text is that the Holy Spirit leads Jesus into the wilderness to do battle with Satan. Just as the Spirit formerly led Israel through the Red Sea and into the wilderness on their way to Mount Sinai in preparation for their conquest of the promised land. More than this, I want you to observe that while the testing will come from Satan, it's important to note it's the Holy Spirit who is orchestrating the event by taking the initiative to lead Jesus to the testing. In other words, the scene sort of reminds us a little bit of the opening of Job, you know, where God singles Job out to incite Satan to test him. It's kind of the same here. While Satan is the one who's doing the testing, the one who orchestrates the event is God himself. In addition, also note the emphasis of the story is on the testing of Jesus' messianic vocation as the Son of God. In other words, it's important to recall that at his baptism, Jesus not only received the Spirit, but a voice came down from heaven declaring him to be the Son of God. So it's no coincidence then that immediately after this high point in Jesus' life, Satan comes to challenge the, dec- the declaration just made regarding Jesus' vocation. If you are the Son of God, Obviously, you ought not to go hungry. If you are the Son of God, surely God won't allow you to be harmed. In short, the nature of the testing recorded in our text is specifically over Jesus' newly revealed relationship with God, declared only a short time before at his baptism. Now, so for reasons we're going to see later, that's going to be important for understanding how this text anticipates later events. Finally, regarding context. Once more in verse 1, we need to point out that the word translated as tempted can be misleading. I'll say this for several reasons. The first of which is the verb Matthew uses uh, always signifies testing in every other occurrence in his gospel. 
And in the 36 occurrences uh, that we uh, uh, that word in the New Testament, most of those times it indicates testing rather than tempting. A lot depends on context. And it's really, uh, it's only in a couple of occurrences does it clearly give the indication of, temp- of tempting to do wrong. But I want to stress this because James makes it clear no one should ever say, I, I, I am tempted by God because James says God does not tempt anyone. Since God is the one leading Jesus into the wilderness for his confrontation with Satan, we must insist that it is to be tested rather than tempted. Now granted, Satan will intend it for evil by trying to tempt Jesus, but what he intends for evil, God intends for good. God's going to test Jesus the way he tested Israel. Okay, we'll talk a little bit more of that later. For now, let's look into what we might better refer to as the testing of the Son of God. What follows is largely a summary of Austin Ferrer's treatment of this passage from his book, The Triple Victory, to which I'm indebted. What Pharaoh does is show the reason why Jesus was tested in the ways he was. In particular, we must recall all we've said about how Moses depicts Jesus not only as a new Israel, but in many respects also as a new Moses who's forming a new Israel around himself. When we do that, we'll quickly see that Jesus is faced with the exact series of tests Israel faced when they were in the wilderness. Okay, first thing I want us to see. Let me show you what I mean. First, after Israel had been delivered from Egypt and passed through the Red Sea, they went into the wilderness where they quickly discovered they had no water or bread. As a result, they immediately begin to grumble against Moses and the Lord and even go so far as to express their desire to return to Egypt. Here we are, we're out here, we have nothing to eat or drink. This is right after the Red Sea crossing. In response, Exodus 15 tells us the Lord shows Moses a tree which he cast into the water and the waters were made sweet. Shortly thereafter, God also made it rain bread from heaven for the Israelites. And what's interesting is that 40 years later, Moses comments on these events in Deuteronomy 8, which we read earlier. There Moses says that the Lord caused Israel to hunger in the wilderness for 40 years to test them to see what was in their heart. In other words, where their, where their affections lay and whether they would be, be obedient to God or not. Therefore, it's not a coincidence that the first thing Satan tests Jesus regarding is hunger. And it just so happens the passage from Deuteronomy 8 is the passage Jesus quotes in response to the first test. He says, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. The idea is that the lesson Israel was supposed to learn from their abstinence was that they were to rely on the Lord for bread 
rather than grumble against him in the realization that the Lord who had delivered them from Egypt, brought them through the Red Sea, was going to do good for the nation and provide for them. Okay? Test one. Test two now. Coming to the second test, temptation, whatever. Once again, we must go back to the story of Israel, this time recorded in Exodus 17, where we learn that no sooner had Israel received bread and meat from heaven, they again found they lacked food. And once again, they learn nothing from the previous test. They grumble against Moses and the Lord. But this time they add to their sin of grumbling, the sin of testing the Lord. Exodus seventeen seven says, So Moses called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the contention of the children of Israel and because they tested the Lord saying, is the Lord among us or not? The idea is that Israel put God to the test by withholding their trust in him until he demonstrated his power. See, apparently laying waste the land of Egypt, parting the Red Sea, sweetening water, and raining bread from heaven Weren't enough to win their trust. And in fact, they said to the Lord, and we, we do the same thing, don't we? How many things has the Lord brought us through and then we're faced with another dilemma and there we go again. It's as if they're saying, well, what have you done for me lately? You're going to have to prove yourself again before we believe that you're for us rather than against us. This is a story alluded to in the second test the devil puts before Jesus when he sets him on the pinnacle of the temple. And he says to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down. And then he quotes Psalm 91, which we're going to sing later, which promises angelic protection for God's people. In his comeback, Jesus alludes to the incident in Exodus when he responds to the devil's second test and says, what's more, it is written, you shall not tempt or test the Lord your God. See, unlike Israel, Jesus doesn't need more proof before he trusts his father. The voice from heaven declaring him to be God's son was sufficient for him. Finally, Regarding the third test. Later in Exodus. While Israel waited at the foot of Mount Sinai. For Moses to reappear from the cloud. The nation added the sin of idolatry. To their previous sins. Of lusting for bread and testing the Lord. By constructing a golden calf at the foot of the mountain. And bowing down to worship it. Moses also alludes to this event later in Deuteronomy when he exhorts Israel to worship no other gods but Yahweh. So likewise, after Satan appeals to Jesus to fall down and worship him in exchange for all the kingdoms of the world, Jesus responds to the third test the same way as before by quoting Moses from Deuteronomy 6. Where Moses says, you shall fear the Lord your God and serve him and shall take oaths in his name. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the people who are all around you. For the Lord your God is a jealous God among you, lest the anger 
of the Lord your God be aroused against you and destroy you from the face of the earth. If you recall, that's exactly what God threatened to do after the golden calf incident. In summary, point of all this is to say that if we look back to the story of Israel that's being alluded to in our text, we learn that Israel lusted after bread and grumbled against the Lord. Then the nation tested the Lord at Massa and Meribah. Finally, Israel, in effect, worshipped Satan by bowing before the golden calves. That's what Matthew records that Jesus is faced with the same three testings in the exact order. The only difference is Jesus succeeds in overcoming the test precisely where Israel fell. Unlike Israel, Jesus trusted God for his bread, refuses to test God, and does not succumb to idolatry. And as a result, Jesus proves himself to be the true Israel, the true Son of God. And in doing so, he reverses the curse of the first Israel. Okay? Now, we're not quite finished here. Those are the three testings, all right? That shows how Jesus is the greater Israel. But remember, Matthew wants to show us Jesus isn't just the true Israel. He's also the greater Moses. And we see this from the begin from from the fact that at the beginning of our text, we're told Jesus does all of this after having fasted forty days and forty nights. And as it just so happens, Deuteronomy nine tells us how Moses fasted for the the same amount of time on not one but two occasions. First came before he received the tablets of the law, and the second was right after the golden calf incident. Before God gave him a second copy of the law. On both occasions, Moses fasted 40 days and 40 nights. And what's interesting about this is that while fasting for the second time, Moses threw himself down before the Lord and pleaded with Yahweh to turn from his wrath against Israel. And what's remarkable is that Moses' intercession on behalf of Israel resulted in the nation being saved from destruction. So that despite their lust for bread, their sin of grumbling, their testing of God, and their idolatry, the Lord was gracious and merciful to them and still led them to the good land flowing with milk and honey. The Lord did this because Moses, through his intercession, through his intercession, did the opposite Of what Israel had been doing. In other words. Whereas Israel complained. They had no bread. Moses refused bread. Whereas Israel grumbled. And put God to the test. At the waters of Massa. Moses by contrast. Drank nothing for 40 days. And whereas Israel. Set up an idol. And bowed down to it. Moses destroyed the idol. And bowed down before the Lord instead. And the point of all this is to show us that Moses was faithful where Israel was unfaithful because Moses was the type of Christ and he was prefiguring everything Jesus would do in his life.
That's why Israel was saved. In the same way, because Jesus is the new and greater Moses, we are now saved from our grumbling, from our testing of the Lord, and all the ways we repeat Israel's sin. And we are brought through the wilderness to our inheritance, which is the kingdom of God. That is, I think, what we're to learn from this text. Now, in light of what we just heard, I'd like to make a little application. Two things I particularly want to leave you to think about today. First, I want us to recall how I mentioned at the beginning of the sermon that Jesus' experience in the wilderness anticipates the greater testing he faces when going to his death on the cross. The reason I say this is because Matthew records that when Jesus is dying on the cross, the Jewish leaders echo Satan's challenge, particularly to Jesus' sonship. They say, if you are the son of God, come down from the cross. What's what they say? He trusted him God. Let him deliver him now if he will, if he will have him. For he said, I am the son of God. They do this three times, as you might guess. What we're to learn from this is that Jesus' testing in the wilderness was a preview of his testing on the cross. When, like Moses, he intercedes for us to save us from destruction. It's important we point this out because a a, a lot of times you'll find the only point anyone makes of this text is how we can learn from Jesus' example when faced with times of testing By doing just as he did by responding to Satan with God's word at every point. What I want us to see today, though, is that while there's certainly value in learning from Jesus' example, which we'll do in just a moment. Given all that we've heard today, we need to make it clear that the first point of our passage isn't to tell us what we should do, but what Christ has done for us. In other words, I think the main point of our passage is not to show Jesus, first of all, as our example, but as our hero who has won the victory for us. And it is precisely because he's won the victory that we too are enabled by the same spirit who led Jesus in the wilderness to be tested and to overcome that testing when faced with it. I think only by grasping that fact that we have the confidence to face testings, knowing that Jesus, our hero, has already overcome his testing. To illustrate my point, in Psalm 2, the Father promises his anointed son the same kingdoms of the world offered to, to, to Jesus by Satan, which have now been given to Jesus as his inheritance because... Jesus refused to bow down to Satan, but instead obeyed his father to the death. And it is that realization that gives us confidence then to go make disciples of those nations, knowing we're not doing it in our own strength. We're doing it in the strength of the one who now has all power in heaven and earth best in him because he prevailed over Satan in the wilderness and on the cross. This is what I mean when I say Jesus does more than just set a good example for us. Like Moses on behalf of Israel, by his intercession for us, he also empowers us to gain the victory over testing ourselves, 
Which is why Paul tells the Romans that, that we will trample Satan under our feet as well. In summary, knowing Jesus has already defeated Satan as our hero gives us hope that we can then follow his example and claim victory over sin ourselves. Lastly, though, regarding Jesus, our example, we can learn from him. I just want to make sure this is showing Jesus as our hero, first of all. Now, what can we learn from his example? Okay? I do think we can learn from how Jesus faced Satan's testing. But I want to make sure we're seeing the whole picture. In other words, the way it's often taught, we see in our text how Jesus responds to Satan's offer by repeatedly, to his offers by repeatedly quoting scripture so that Jesus counters Satan's lies with the truth. Therefore, many argue that Jesus shows us how to conquer temptation with the word of God. The idea is by hiding God's word in our hearts, as the psalmist says, we are prevented from sinning against God. Alright? Without in any way denying that truth, I want to stress that I think the situation is just a bit more complicated than the way it's sometimes stated. What I mean is that to counter Satan lies, I, I think it's important to truly grasp the fullness of the goodness and beauty of God's word. Not just the truth of God's word, but also the beauty and goodness of God's word. And I say that because Satan would have us think God is stingy. And that by doing what God says, we will be deprived of good things, whereas he offers us more. But the fact is, when God gives us his word, which is truth, it's because he knows that keeping his word is the real source of happiness and blessing. Okay? In other words, God doesn't withhold good things from his children. He intends to give Jesus the kingdoms of the world offered to Jesus by Satan, just on different terms. Likewise, when Satan tells Jesus to throw himself down from the temple because Psalm 91 promises angelic protection, it's not like the Father's gonna, gonna withhold angelic help from Jesus. He's going to, he's going to supply it after Jesus has withstood testing. That's why the very end of our text we're told, after Satan leaves, angels come and minister to Jesus. That's why when Jesus is arrested and his disciples want to protect him, Jesus asks, Do you think that I cannot now pray to my Father and he will provide me with more than 12 legions of angels? Jesus knew he had angelic protection available for him. But more importantly, he knew he had to fulfill the scriptures. And then he would receive far more than anything Satan ever offered. To my point. When talking about the battle with sin and temptation, we must be careful not to frame the discussion in such a way that we think it's merely a battle between truth and falsehood and knowing the difference. So that if we just remember enough scripture verses to counter lies, we can bring them to mind when facing temptation. If only it was that easy, right? You know, I just I know a lot about the Bible, so I'm free yeah, and guess what? You know what? I still do wrong. 
So we all know many times we know the truth. We know the right thing. But we do the wrong thing anyway because of our desires. Because like Israel, what's in our hearts? Where are our affections like? Here's where our affections come in, which we, we can't leave out of the discussion. When talking about the battle against sin, Thomas Chalmers uh, st- stressed the expulsive power of new affection. I gotta love this more than that, ultimately. Dustin Messer explains it. He says, that is, to stop loving one thing, we need to, le- to love another thing more. Until the gospel becomes believable and beautiful to us, no amount of gritting our teeth and doing the right thing for its own sake will do. Until we really believe there's a treasure in the field, we won't sell all that we have to buy it. We always have to keep that in mind also when facing temptation. It's not stated in our text. Psalm 2 tells us Jesus is going to be given the kingdoms of the world offered by Satan. But they'll only be granted to him by his father as a reward for his obedience. Therefore, Jesus' obedience stemmed from more than simply the ability to discern God's truth from Satan's lies. His obedience also stemmed from his affections, which is why the author of Hebrews tells us Jesus for the joy. He saw that this is the good thing. I'm going to receive things for the joy set before him. He endured the cross, despised the shame with the result. He's now set down at the right hand of the throne of heaven, ruling over the nations now given to him. In conclusion, we should be clear that while God does not tempt us, he does test us in the sense that he puts pressure on us and he knocks out the props we rely on so that the things hidden in our hearts will be revealed and particularly where our loves reside. Often it's not untypical for him to do so in the aftermath of some great spiritual gift or blessing. That's the way the father works with all his sons. He did it with Adam. He did it with Jesus. He gives us his spirit, exhorts us to follow him, And then the Spirit leads us into a time of testing. But the good news is he does this for our good. To strengthen our hands for war and to reorient our affections so that we grow like our elder brother in faith and hope and love for God and his goodness. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we've heard your word today and you've taught us and we see the beauty of it now. It it looks to the past and looks to uh, the future and we we believe it and we know it's true and you've taught us all uh, many things, but our affections so often need to be reoriented as well. And Lord, we pray that, that they would be, uh, that we would see uh, that, that when you tell us no to things and uh, and you put us through trials. It's because you're our Father and you love us and you're chasing us and you want good for us. God, help us to always believe and trust in, in, in you in that regard. And so change our affections, Lord, to love your law. Oh, how I love thy law. It's my meditation all the day. God, may that be our prayer. In Christ's name, amen. Let's continue to worship the Lord by bringing forth his tithes and our offerings.